It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Now the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hey, Tribe fans, welcome to this week's episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive, in honor of Shane Bieber's unanimous Cy Young Award win and for his Triple Crown winning season. We're actually going to take a look back at Cleveland's only other pitcher to win the Triple Crown, and perhaps one of the best seasons pitching-wise in Cleveland Indians history, and that is Bob Feller's 1940 campaign. Now, if you're not aware, the pitching triple crown consists of wins, ERAs, and strikeouts. In 1940, Bob had just turned 21 before uh, the start of the season. His birthday's in November, and he was entering his fifth professional season. Now, obviously, his first season, he only pitched a a few games here and there towards the tail end of 1936. Um, now, the previous season, Bob had just missed the AL Triple Crown, finishing third in the ERA category while leading with 24 wins and 246 strikeouts. But nevertheless, we're going to look back starting uh, actually in February. I went through the Plain Dealer archives to see what was entailed or, you know, what was going on for uh, Bob before the season started and, you know, anything unique happened before that 1940 campaign. In that February 7th plane dealer, it recounts an amusing story about Feller's return to Cleveland for an annual event that would take place with the writers and the, the sports teams called 
the ribs and roasts, and this one was obviously of 1940, uh, held at the Hotel Holiday. And again, I'm not sure what incarnation of the Holiday Hotel it was, but I, I spoke of it in one of the earlier podcasts about just how gorgeous that building was, and it was either remodeled or demolished and built as a new hotel and not necessarily with the same um, luster as it used to have. But again, Google it and you'll see some pictures. And I mean, if you're into history and historic buildings, the Holiday Hotel was was lovely. But I digress. This is not a podcast about historic preservation per se. And so the paper said Feller, picked by baseball writers as the leading Cleveland athlete of 1939, was scheduled to be a guest of honor, number one, yesterday noon. However, he telephoned from Memphis that the airplane in which he was traveling had been forced down by bad weather and that he could not persuade any private pilot to fly him the rest of the way. Uh, He said, and I feel particularly bad about missing the show because I have my speech all prepared. In response, Gordon Cobbledick, the writer, said, telegraph it to us immediately, Bob. Uh, So they were able to at least get Bob's speech uh, in front of everyone that showed up to the event. And Bob's words were as followed. I feel honored to stand here amid such surroundings. Every man in baseball likes to look upon uh, the press as friends. I understand what newspaper men have done for me. I know that 99 cases out of 100, the baseball writers have given me the best of the bargain in their stories and have aided in me making me a pitcher. I came among you baseball writers as a farm boy, the dust of Iowa figuratively still on my boots, and the odor of stock still fresh in my nostrils. I am not ashamed of that background. I am proud of it. But I am prouder still that I have in some small measure succeeded in a baseball sense. Both you and my teammates and the officials of the Cleveland Baseball Club have helped make that possible. Heck, Bob might have had a uh, future as a sports writer. That was pretty good. And in that crowd that night were, uh, I mean, some legends of Cleveland baseball. Tris Speaker was there, Mel Harder, Joe Vosmick, Ray Mack, Luke Sewell, Terry Turner, Elmer Flick, Bill Bradley, and and Wambi. So one of those occasions, too, if you could be a, a fly on the wall or sitting at one of those tables with those guys, imagining the stories they probably could tell. Again, at this point, Bob was the biggest star in baseball, uh, especially in Cleveland. And there's an anecdote in uh, about Feller's popularity in the February 26th plane dealer, just in terms of the gate draw that Bob brought in when he pitched. And the paper said, undoubtedly, the greatest single gate attraction in the game today is our own Bob Feller. This is recognized wherever the Indians travel. When they're in Philadelphia... There's sure to be a call for Oscar Vitt from Clark Griffith uh, pleading to be allowed to announce that Feller will pitch on a certain day in Washington. And when they're in Washington, it'll be Barrow or Eddie Collins or Connie Mack on the phone with similar requests. Feller is the only pitcher in the game whose appearances are usually announced several days in advance. His presence on the mound is good for thousands of paid admissions over and above what might be expected from an ordinary game. Often the attendance is more than doubled. And later you see that too in uh, Feller's contracts. Uh, when, when crowd numbers were higher, he'd get bonuses and, and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, I, again, attests to what a star Bob was. 
to add a little context to that 1940s season as well, um, actually since 1938, the manager of the of tribe was Oscar Asivit, who was a former ball player. And again, not to overshadow this podcast being about Bob, but in the grand context of summing things up, uh, the 1948 club was a very good club, capable of winning a World Series. However, they didn't really mesh well with Vitt uh, overall, even ever since he took the job. And by June, uh, there was a internal revolt against Vitt, and there's this big story of them going to the ownership and asking for Vitt to be tossed out. And the club then gained the nickname the Cleveland Crybabies. But again, that's a whole another story. Um, if you're actually interested in, in learning more about that, unless we get to a podcast down the line, I would suggest picking up Scott Longard's book on that era of Cleveland Indians baseball. But again, uh, a manager who didn't really uh, gel with the team too well. Nevertheless, for someone who wanted players to play their hardest, Vitt wasn't necessarily thrilled with Feller's workouts uh, in spring training in 1940. Uh, on our Tribe Inspires Instagram, our, our community impact in social media we use, I shared a quote from Mel Harder that kind of spoke to Feller at that time and, and what he was doing. And Harder said, quote, he never asked anybody to do what he did. He just went and did it. And those who thought they had enough and were looking for a breather felt they couldn't quit if Feller didn't. So again, Feller was one of those lead by example guys versus uh you know, yelling at you to keep running laps or doing whatever it was that Bob was doing at the time. So here you have Vitt commenting on Feller's 1940 spring training. On March 2nd, uh, the newspaper said, Slow down, Bob. You're going too fast. Rapid Robert Feller, the swift young man of the diamond and roadways, is also the fastest of the Indians to get to the practice field. In fact, yesterday, manager Oscar Vitt warned him to slow up. Bob is pictured above leaping a fence at the Fort Myers field to get a work to get the work quicker. So again, uh, Bob was was itching to get on the field, and it also said Vit flags down Feller in fear Indians ace will go stale. Vit was forced today to lay down the law to Bob Feller, and because experience has raised doubts in his mind as to the uh, effic efficacy of his lecture. He enlisted the help of his coaches, Luke Sewell, Johnny Bassler, and Oscar Malello, uh, in his efforts to restrain the enthusiasm of the star pitcher. It was around this time, too, that fans uh, were starting to get uh, some more information about Feller. Again, he was written about, it seemed, almost every day. And uh, in The Plain Dealer, it started mentioning the fact that he was going to build his parents and family a house back in Iowa. And again, Bob was in his fifth season, so he had some some money in the bank. But the March 21st paper mentioned that um, the dispatch in yesterday's paper that Bob Feller, young Cleveland pitcher, was preparing to build a house for his father and mother and sister on the Iowa farm placed the young fireballer in the one column of the hearts of scores of thousands of his diamond admirers. It is a sort of thing which demonstrates beyond a doubt that Bob has character as well as a strong right arm. It would have been a very easy thing for Feller with the fame and the easy one which was his before he had become of age to have gone a little haywire to have wasted his money and ruined a promising career. But Feller has stuck to pitching. 
learned his trade, and settled down to what promises to be an unusually long period of large earnings in baseball. That Bob wants to pay a portion of his indebtedness to his hardworking parents by setting them up in a home which farming can never have built for them is the finest commentary on the stuff of which the fellers are made. We wish them many happy years in the new farm home and Bob continued increasing success on the pitching mound. Feller had high hopes for the 1940 season. On March 24th, he declared, I think I can win 30 games this year. Last year, I did things wrong that I'll do right this year. Enough to make the difference. It's a pretty solid assessment, I guess. If you fix the things you were doing wrong and do them right, you should hopefully have success. And with spring training he was having, you know, no one could doubt him. On April 4th, it mentioned Feller has given only one run and seven hits in 15 innings and has struck out 17 batters. The next day, Bob went to pitch seven shutout innings. Now, by April 14th, Gordon Cobbledick, uh, assessing the, the current tribe roster, said about Feller, he's better than ever before. Control improved, particularly with respect to curveball. Holds runners on base like a veteran. Most serious weakness is fielding balls hit back through the box. May strike out fewer batters, but should win more games. Put them down for 25. Now, there really isn't a better way to start a season as a pitcher than what Bob did on opening day, April 16th at Chicago. The newspaper uh, pronounced that Feller faces White Sox today if rain doesn't halt the opener. And thankfully, the rain didn't halt the opener because Bob went to pitch his probably most famous no-hitter of his career. Uh, The only run of that game was in the top of the fourth with two down and a runner on uh, Raleigh Helmsley, triple home Jeff Jeff Heath to give the Tribe a one nothing uh, lead. And Feller ended up recording eight strikeouts, five walks, while facing 33 batters. In the recap of the game, uh, Feller says he wasn't sure of a no-hitter until last out. Bob praises Max Stop, unworried by jinx. Vitt prayed pitcher would get past Abling. And for nearly two and a half hours, Bob was dealing. Uh, quoted after the game, he said, or uh, the paper said, as cool in the clubhouse after the game as he was on the mound, Feller said, quote, I wasn't sure I had it until Ray Mack threw out the last man. That was the hardest hit ball at me all day. It really was hit. I knew I had a chance for a no-hitter in the ninth, but I tried to put the thought out of my mind by reminding myself, you never have a no-hitter until the last man is out. I got to thinking, I just pitched my own ball game. A pitcher can't be any better than he really is, so I just pitched. And that's why I was tickled when Mac came up with the ball. Mac came up with two as sweet plays as I've ever seen. He was way off balance when he scooped up Rosenthal's roller in the eighth. And how his throw ever beat Larry to the bag, I don't know. And I don't know how he ever knocked down right smash in the ninth. To say nothing of retrieving the ball and throwing the guy out. Manager Ossie Vid expressed his opinion. Said, quote, boy, I'll never forget that ninth inning. I sat there with Luke Sewell and just prayed. I remember once saying to Luke, oh, God, just let him get by Appling. He ended up walking him, so he, he got by him. And baseball is full of those quirky, unwritten rules, and one of which is you don't disturb the pitcher when he's throwing a no-hitter. And even back in 1940, things were no different. And here in the Plain Dealer, it mentioned in the Tribes Dugout, it was quiet as a tomb, Finally, Jeff Heath can no longer stand it. He 
He cleared his throat and began to speak. Well, Robert, he ventured, but got no further. Another word, snarled Harry Eisenstadt, and I'll stick my hand down your throat to the elbow. So pretty pretty strong words to uh, keep that no-hitter jinx away. More about that game. Feller, uh, it said Feller uses only fastball after the second to win the no-hitter one nothing. Uh, not only was the cold, windy day unfavorable for a pitcher, but Bob was unable to throw a curve because he couldn't grip a slippery ball. After the second inning, he attempted no curves at all, but he had to be content with rifling his fastball past the batters. Also mentions that there were no doubtful plays, no plays which a benign official scorer gave Feller the benefit of his judgment. And although there were between fourteen to 15,000 fans there, uh, in Chicago, thankfully, it was close enough to Iowa that Bob's family, his mom, dad, and sister, were all in attendance. And to speak to Bob's popularity um, in Cleveland, when the team returned home to uh, to start their homestand, there were about 5,000 fans waiting for Rapid Robert. And the paper mentioned that almost an unmanageable throng of 5,000 hero-worshipping baseball fans jammed the concourse of the Union Terminal last night to welcome home Bob Feller and his Cleveland Indian teammates. Given undeniable evidence that Feller was the one who caused all the excitement, the crowd quickly dispersed after Bob had been escorted to the taxi, cl- taxi cab space by police. And then uh, another fun note after that too, Bob also received a dog from a local dog breeder and that made the news and there's this picture of Bob standing there with this dog i'm not sure what ever happened if he kept the dog or whatnot but nevertheless everyone loves dogs and it was kind of fun to see that pop up in the newspaper now bob's next start he didn't fare so well and was actually nearly injured uh said the paper said but there was no comfort for him yesterday he was hit harder than any team hit him in any game last season and what was more he was lucky literally to escape with his life for a terrific line smash uh, from the bat of Barney McCoskey, the Tigers' leadoff man, all but decapitated him in the wild third inning. Bob threw his glove in front of his face in self-defense, but the fear that he had been hurt brought the other Indians rushing to his side from the field and bench. No serious damage was done, and he resumed pitching in a minute, but he had nothing to fool the Tigers' sluggers, who were handcuffed by Johnny Allen last Friday. So again, Bob almost took a line drive to the face, which would have probably put an end to uh, this magical 1940 season for him. And in that season, Bob started 37 games, and there was this constant reminder of a no-hit jinx that seemed to play in most of the articles written about him after uh, several of these starts. After a 3-1 victory on April 25th, Feller scattered eight hits over nine innings while striking out eight and allowing one run. The paper mentioned, Feller bounces back as Hemsley's bat again thwarts Edgar Smith. Uh, the jinx which Bob Feller picked up when he committed the fatal faux pas of pitching a no-hit game expired with a low moaning sigh at League Park yesterday, meaning Bob looked good and, and pitched well. And while I'm not going to highlight every game pitched, we will touch on a few. Again, of Bob's 37 starts, he completed 31 of those, which led all of baseball that season. For as good as Bob was in 1940, he did have the few hiccups on April 29th. Bob and the tribe fell to the Tigers, the paper said. Feller forces in run in the eighth that gives Tigers game four to three. 
Three walks and a hit batter cost Bob's second defeat. Indians filled bases in the ninth, but the rally was choked off. Uh, Bob, I think he led the league as well in walks that season, so still working on that on that control. But nevertheless, Bob had a great month of May. He went 5-0 with a 2.03 ERA, completing five of six starts and striking out 41. Uh, May 9th, he beat the Yanks, struck out seven, uh, beat, lost to Philadelphia, or the team lost to Philadelphia. He didn't get the loss, but he was pulled after three and two-thirds of an inning, giving up eight hits and seven runs. Um, May 19th, a 5-1 to one win versus the Yankees. He had six strikeouts that game. And uh, so, again, pretty solid month of uh, May for Bob to get him going in the right direction and get the tribe going in the right direction as they were battling for first place. And Bob's strikeout numbers continued to improve throughout July or through July. In June, he recorded 56 strikeouts and then in July, 62 before trending downward with 44 in August and 21 in September. And now Feller nearly had another no hitter in at Philadelphia on July 12th, where he finished a complete game, a one hit, no run, 13 strikeout game. And the paper recapped it saying, a single by Dick Siebert in the eighth inning, a sharp grounder that was no more than a foot out of Ray Mack's reach deprived Bob Feller of his second no-hit game here tonight. But it didn't deprive him of his 14th victory in a sensational one to nothing duel with Johnny Babbage, the for- a reformed NL pitcher who has become the ace of Connie Mack's staff. For seven innings, a shivering, top-coated, blanketed crowd of 8,104, the smallest congregation that has ever seen a night game in the American League, watched Feller mow down the athletics with the finest pitching exhibition he has ever given since the season opened. Uh, In that time, the only member of the Mackman to reach first base was Al uh, Brancato, who walked with two out in the fourth and only one who... Well, threatened to break into the base hit column was D. Miles, who was robbed by a dazzling one-handed stop by Lou Boudreau in the same inning. At the end of the seventh, as they went to the dugout together, Feller showed Raleigh Hemsley a blister he had worn on the inside of his middle finger of his pitching hand, and that display of a minor injury may have cost him not uh, cost him a hit that game. For Hemsley calling uh, for the first pitch to Siebert, the leadoff batter in the eighth, decided against the curve, which he normally would have ordered for a noted first ball hitter, and to save aggravation of the blistered finger, he signed for a fastball. If I hadn't known about the blister, I never would have called for a fastball on the first pitch, he said after the game. Siebert always has a cut at the first ball if it's in there, and I'd have given him a breaking ball to hit. And near the end of the season, Feller had another chance at history. On September 15th, he faced only 28 uh, batters, and the paper said, Facing only 28 men is bigger feat to Feller than no hitter. Villain Dick Dick Siebert is caught off first base after making initial hit off Feller, and Feller ended up giving uh, two hits up in that game, but uh, barely faced, you know, the, the minimum. And Bob said he had perfect control and never tired. Splashing under the uh, under the shower in the tribe's clubhouse after his two hit victory over the Philadelphia Athletics at the stadium, the fireball ace shrugged his shoulders and laughed when teammates expressed their regrets over his failure to notch a second no hitter of the season. "Quote: It would have been nice to hold them hitless, but I'm satisfied with a two hitter. I pitched four one hit games already, so I guess I'll hang up a few two hitters." That hit Siebert's was a looper. 
but the one he got off me in Philadelphia was a line drive, so I haven't anything to complain about. Frank Hayes got a real hit in the ninth, so I wouldn't have had the no-hit game anyway. My control was just about perfect. It was only the second game I ever pitched without giving a, ba- uh, giving a base on balls. You don't have to work half as hard when you have good control, and I wasn't a bit tired after the game. It probably will be a long time before I face only 28 batters in a game again. And I was curious about that number, so I went back and looked, and that was the only game Bob ever had faced 28. He did have five games where he faced 29 batters and three games where he faced 30. So, uh, interesting tidbit. As I mentioned earlier, during the club's second half, they kind of oscillated between first and second place. They had an internal strife, which is never great for chemistry. And, and wouldn't you know it, the season came down to the final three-game series against the Tigers. The Tribe had been swept in Detroit a week earlier, so they needed to sweep Detroit. But on September 27th, they dropped a 2-0 game, which Feller was pitching uh, with one out in the top of the fourth. Feller walked uh, a batter and struck out Hank uh, Greenberg, only to surrender a home run to Rudy York. At the end of the season, though, Feller finished with 27 wins, a 2.61 ERA, 261 strikeouts, and 320 innings pitched. Feller would have won Major League Baseball's Triple Crown, but his ERA was slightly higher than the Reds' Bucky Walters, who had a 2.48. And after the season, on October 1st, the paper reported that Bobby's had enough. No barnstorming for me, says Rapid Robert Feller, who never knew what it was to own a weary arm when he was learning how to pitch behind the barn. Uh, October 17th, and you see this actually Throughout 1940, it's an interesting juxtaposition, all these highlights of Feller, but also the paper covering the events going on in Europe. And obviously, the United States gets into World War II a little bit later. But uh, knowing Bob's history with that, you know, looking back in history, it's just an interesting, uh, uh, like I said, juxtaposition, my, my big word. So on October 17th, the Plain Dealer shows a photo of Bob with his registration card as one of 160,000 who registered for the military. And the paper said, Bob Feller, Cleveland Indians ace pitcher, was among the 160,000 men who registered for military training here yesterday. Bob is shown as he proudly displays his registration card. He will leave Cleveland today for a hunting trip in Montana. And a few days after Bob's birthday, the MVP award was announced. And unfortunately, Bob finished runner-up to uh, Detroit's Hank Greenberg and Lou Boudreau actually finished fifth, but uh, Bob, you could easily make a case, was the MVP of that 1940 season. However, it just wasn't meant to be, and he finished a runner-up. And later on in November, uh, Ossie Vitt had been fired by the club. Clearly, it just wasn't going to work out. So when uh, the Indians hired Roger Peckinpah, Feller added his two cents and said, Roger Peckinpah will make a big improvement in the morale and spirit of the players. He knows the inside of the Indian situation. He knows what caused the internal trouble last season, and he knows what to do to keep it from cropping up again. And then you see a few more uh, little stories in the paper. On November 20th, Feller had been taking boxing lessons back in Iowa, so that, that made the news. And then on Christmas Day, the Feller family was um, had some nice pictures in the paper, They were celebrating the holiday at the house that Bob had built that was mentioned earlier in the podcast. And the description's great. It mentioned that 
It included an electric washer. The 10-room house also had a radio plug in every room, and the house itself cost $25,000. And that's the, the half-hour abridged version of Bob Feller's 1940 Triple Crown winning season. Obviously, if they had a Cy Young Award at the time, Bob clearly would have won it. However, Cy was still uh, kicking kicking around in Tuscarawas County, and uh, there are some great pictures of Bob with Cy Young. Uh, so, a imagine the conversations they had, but b um, you know there's there wasn't the uh, award, but nevertheless inspired by uh, Shane's 2020 campaign, it's uh, uh, 80 years later. It's it's neat to uh, make that connection between the two and. You know, hopefully Shane goes on to uh, have a Bob Feller-like career. Only time will tell what happens there. But nevertheless, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. Um, feel free, if you have any other ideas for some shows, I have a few I, I'm working on, but always happy to take suggestions. Uh, feel free to give the podcast uh, some some ratings on the, the websites or, uh, you know, shoot me a message on Twitter or, or, uh, any, any which way. And I'd be happy to hear, I, I, I checked the stats and we have people listening from all over. I see there's uh, international listeners. So thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. I really appreciate it and, uh, go tribe. You've been listening to Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive, with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.